0: This is the Dominique Foxworth show. All right. Special episode that you've all been clamoring for talking union stuff with a very special guest, a member of the WGA negotiating uh, committee. My friend, Mike sure he's a writer on office creator of the good place. Uh, what other, what other great shows have you made? Um, Parks and Rec, I love that show. You're a uh, best-selling author, philosophy book that I actually really enjoyed. I read it. If you were here last episode, you heard me talking about all the books that I lied about reading. I actually read this one. So that's a credit to you. So, Mike.
1: Very I, flattering. <laughs> thank you.
0: I appreciate you being here. All the great things that you've accomplished. Master of None, that popped in another thing that you're associated with. Oh, Primo. I gotta watch Primo on Freebie. Yeah. Our guy Shay Serrano is a writer on that or creator of that. I don't know all creator, the Yeah,
1: and you, yeah, he. It's his show. It's about his uh, semi autobiographical show about his life growing up in San Antonio.
0: Yeah, everyone should watch that. I like it, but I want to start with something that you are probably less interested in talking about is your <laughs> your um, Boston sports fandom. So it's been a rough summer for Boston sports fans, but I don't want to talk about how you guys have fallen short a couple of times. I do want to talk about the interesting decision that I think you guys are going to have to make, or at least the team's going to have to make about the Jalen Brown contract. And this wasn't a bait and switch. We're going to get to the union talk at some point that everyone is here for. But I think this uh, dovetails well into that conversation, because to me it's about uh, the Jalen Brown contract is going to be the first one that I think is going to be impacted by the new CBA. And I find it very interesting how art and sports are all kind of influenced by business and we don't think about it all that much. So I'll shut up now and hear what you got to say about the Jalen Brown contract.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect storm because it's the first kind of like top 25 guy in the league column who is eligible for a max deal after next season and he was second team all NBA, which means it's a super max deal, which means it's not 189 million; it's like 300 million potentially. And his, as a player, he's incredible. He's an amazing basketball player, and also he kind of can't dribble, and so and that was exposed in the playoffs, right? So they have this. It, it, Tatum isn't going anywhere. Tatum will get every super max that he's eligible for for as long as they can keep him in the building. And so the question really is, and you have to answer the question of whether to extend him in tandem with all this other stuff, are you going to spend, the way this new CBA is constructed, are you going to spend 70% of your payroll on Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown? And that is an enormous question. It's the, the Look, you go into the draft every year hoping, praying. You get Jalen Brown, like that that guy he's a twenty five point scorer. he's an excellent defender. he's a he's still young, he's twenty six years old or whatever. He's the most valuable position in the wing in the league, which is a a wing, an athletic rangy wing. So like you this is everyone who is a prisoner of the moment and is saying you can't extend him is forgetting. That every year, every team in the league would like you know, bend over backwards to draft a Jalen Brown. The question now is it's not about his talent, really. it's about the it's the business decision of do you give seventy percent of your payroll for five years to Tatum and Jalen Brown. It's very difficult. Brad Stevens came out today like an hour ago and said that there was no question they wanted him around, and I think that's probably right because I think that There are very few guys in the league who can do everything that Jalen Brown can do and also dribble really well. And so the, you know, you would have to assume that they're going to keep him around. But it's funny because the way that the these leagues operate, it just leads to the it makes it seem like a question. Like, do you keep a guy who's a top twenty five player on your team? Of course you do. Uh, but it's not that simple because of the CBA.
0: In May, we did a show um, about this, uh, Charlie and I, my my co host and we talked a bunch about it, and I think we ended at a different place than you, and I think I started where you are, but having been around sports and been around sports business and been on the NBA Players Association, um, been executive there and president of the NFL union, one thing I always noticed is that out of new CBAs comes a change to the games that the teams that adapt more quickly to uh, have an advantage. So it's going to be very difficult to go over the salary cap in the new CBA. It's going to be easier to keep your players, but harder, I think, to bring new players in. So the question is, Do you are you better with these two players? Or are you better with the flexibility that you might get? because it was never a question in the past because trading players was so much easier the the past it was like you never let an asset go so i don't think anyone necessarily has the right answer but i, I think what's interesting about it i was i was um chief operating officer at the nba players association when we did refuse the cap smoothing which led to kevin durant going to the Warriors and I I was just a fan when the NBA instituted the max contract which I think gave way to the super team era and Mm -hmm. like player empowerment and player movement and I think we get away from these things and we look back at these eras of basketball as if they were actual natural evolutions of the game I think about when I was negotiating uh, representing football how we our CBA uh, ushered in salary cap or rookie wage scale, essentially. And so now the feeling about football is the best way to win is a quarterback on a rookie deal. Like before that, that wasn't a thing. So it's just all interesting that we get further and further away from these decisions and we look back on this and like, we assume this is some natural evolution. And I'd like to use that as a segue into the conversation about the entertainment industry, because with the last work stoppage, people point to, uh, the rise of reality TV. Uh, I guess I I was wondering how you think about yourself as a somewhat of a molder and shaper and decision maker, since you are on the negotiating committee and how it's going to impact the, the art going forward.
1: Well, I think your point is well taken that these things have ripple effects. Every negotiation, every CBA, you know, collective bargaining action has some kind of ripple effect that probably most people can't anticipate. Um, there is some truth, I would say, to the 07 08 writers guild strike leading to an uptick in reality television. The cynic in me would say, Reality television is incredibly cheap to make, and though, and it's not like it didn't exist before then. And at some point, the cynic in me would say they were going to do that anyway, because the whole point of of running a studio is to make as much programming as cheaply as you possibly can. So maybe it accelerated it, or maybe they got more, I don't know, experimental, or or they moved up their schedule of when they were going to roll that stuff out, or whatever. I don't think it's true to say that the Writers Guild strike led to the rise of reality TV necessarily. So whatever comes out of this uh, work action that the Guild is taking, um, yeah, there will be some ripple effects that we can't anticipate. And I think the key, I'll say for myself, is to not worry about it. Because the reason that we're on strike is the profession that we actually do, the thing we actually make is under threat. And all you can control as, a, as an organizing body or as a negotiating committee or anything is to look at the actual landscape now, look at the landscape for your profession five, 10 years down the road, anticipate what's going to happen, and then try to fix it. And so if a bunch of weird stuff happens because of what we do, well, then a bunch of weird stuff happens. But we will have been successful or unsuccessful, not based on this stuff we can't control. But based on what we can control, which is the working conditions for the actual writers and episodic TV and screenwriters and late night and all the things we're fighting for. So, yeah, I mean, I, of course, there are, uh, there's going to be weird ripples. Like, there's no question. And there's some of the stuff we're talking about. AI is like a big issue for the Writers Guild right now and SAG and the DGA, the Directors Guild. Like, there And the reason that we're fighting it now is because we feel like there will be worse problems if we don't fight now then there will be as a result of whatever we do in this moment
0: now let's talk about the play of the week the pressure to follow up hypnotic and cognac weighing heavy on the team hypnotic was in the cup blue and ready for the play and boom on yeho tequila came in with a smooth assist to hypnotic's tropical fruit finish shaken strained poured It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur. Barnstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely.
1: This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple.
0: You said like 13 things that want to send me <laughs> on. And you and I have had these conversations personally about union stuff and they always go longer than anticipated because uh, so much of it to me is interesting. And there's so many parallels. So there the history of unions in this country is a unique one. And we are definitely on a unique or a sad trajectory. There was a civil or a um, Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I don't think will impact either of our unions but it's just in it's in it's in uh a long line i think of backlash to unions and one thing I can say is like the there is a uniqueness about the sports unions that I haven't seen anywhere else except for in like entertainment unions. But there's one other thing that you brought up. You brought up the directors union and the screen actors union also currently in negotiations. I guess I'd be interested in hearing how challenging that makes that dynamic because we only have one group to negotiate with and they only have one group uh, in
1: us to negotiate with on the sports side. So, some of the issues facing all of the uh, Hollywood unions overlap. And, you know, those are things like residual payments for work that gets re aired and health and pension plans and stuff like that. So, some of it is patternable. And when one of the unions achieves something, generally speaking, the AMPTP then patterns it to the other unions. In the past, that has been more true than it is now. And without getting too deep in the weeds here, there is a, some overlap, some patternable stuff that's that's you know being negotiated. There's also a lot that isn't right now. The main reason we're on strike, at least in episodic television, which is a, a place where seventy percent of the guild uh, works at some point during the course of a year is the the writer's room itself, the concept of like a team of writers coming together, being put under contract, and working together to write a TV show, that very concept is under attack. The writer's rooms are getting smaller. The number of jobs is getting fewer. The length of time we're employed is getting shorter. The amount of money we're paid is decreasing. It's literally a shrinking pond. And the reason that that's happening is that for decades and decades and decades, that system just worked really well. You hired a certain number of writers. They worked for a certain amount of time. They wrote a TV show. And while they were doing that, you were also training those young writers, moving up the ladder, and they were learning the skills they needed to be the next generation of people who created shows. The, when the tech money rolled in, when the Netflix money and the Amazon money and the Apple money rolled in and they took over, those companies are obsessed with efficiency, right? That's the tech way. The, the the Silicon Valley way is efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. And so they've been like, well, what if we hire fewer of you and you do the work in less time and we pay you less money? And so we're now fighting largely to try to keep that writer's room from disappearing entirely. So that's something that doesn't pattern to the writer, to the director's guild or the actor's guild. So again, there are certain things that do pattern and a lot of it, a lot of what we're fighting for doesn't. So it do, it matters a little bit less what the DGA does and what SAG does than it would in an ordinary bargaining cycle. Right.
0: So I, I guess, sorry to, to barge in there, but you started no, talking please. about the tech money coming in and that reminds me so much of like the, the chase for efficiency in sports and how in many cases it's, it's made the sports less fun. I think basketball is a little less interesting now because because of that and i think even diehard basketball fans would agree that baseball obviously has a problem with uh strikeouts and home runs being all that anyone plays for it's because like the concept of efficiency bled into the games and turned it Mm -hmm. from a game to a financial mechanism and it's Nobody wants to watch the stock market, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and so I I guess I I bring that up because you talk about negotiating with the AMPTP uh, and they're made up of all the it's it's a ridiculous group to have to negotiate with, like at least all of that's a whole nother avenue that we can get to at some point. But I guess I brought this up because what was low on the list of conversation topics when I was negotiating with both the NBA and the NFL was the quality of the product. So like they do care about the quality of the product, but it wasn't the first thing, which is scary in a world that seems to be even more competitive uh, for your entertainment eyeballs. Is that something that you see also from the group that you negotiate with?
1: Yeah, man, I got to say it. it is. And this isn't just a factor when we're Talking about the actual negotiating, the the Mm -hmm. you know, in the room bargaining action that we're undergoing right now. This has been in my mind, I'll speak, I'm speaking purely personally now. This isn't I'm not speaking for the for the committee or for the guild at large or anything, just me. I have sensed in the last five, six, seven years fewer and fewer people at every stage of the process of making television specifically are asking the question, do we think this is good? It just seems to be a less and less important aspect of it. And, and again, this is a very broad rush. There are plenty yeah. of executives who care very deeply yeah, of course. whether the things they make are good. but But- It used to be a given that everyone would care one way or the other, whether the thing you were making was good. And uh, this exact issue has come up a number of times recently for me where a decision is made, yes or no, do we make this, do we not make this, do we continue with this show, do we not continue with it? And fewer and fewer of those moments appear to be using as a key factor in that decision, is this good? Now look, I'm not naive. None of us is naive. We know that the television industry has always been where the rubber of art meets the road of commerce, right? Like where you always, you always have to be successful to some degree in t- financially for the company you work for in order for your show to keep going. Plenty of excellent TV shows throughout history have been canceled because they just weren't, they didn't make enough money. And, and that's that, no one's under any illusions that it should be any different, frankly. However, when you're discussing, when there's a show that's on the bubble, when there's a show that's like, oh, this is, you know, not maybe getting in quite as many eyeballs as we would have liked and blah, blah, blah. It used to be a, a key factor would be whether the people making it liked it and thought it was good. <laughs> that, that would yeah. be like, that would be a thing that would push it over the top and say, look, I know Arrested Development is a classic example. Arrested Development. No, no one watched the rest of development. I watched no it. No one, even by the standard. Yeah. The, well, everyone who has, has good taste watched it, but <laughs> the, America did not as whole watch it, right? And there, the people running Fox at the time, I remember this very clearly, were like, we can't make a better comedy than this. Like, if we can't make this show work, if we don't keep this show on our airwaves, what is the point of having a network? And so they kept it around for three years on Fox when no one was watching it. And And they probably, I don't think they lost money. They always say they lose money on these things. They never actually lose money. They always make money. But the point is, is like that way to look at this, which is, hey, even if this isn't a monster hit, even if it's like suffering, we still like it and believe in it and think it's good and we're going to keep it around a little longer. That does not exist anymore. Your throat is slit immediately if you don't hit whatever dark box number that they're keeping private, by the way, from all of the people who make the (laughs) shows. You just, it's it. It doesn't matter. Like and and if you look at this is, you know, you've seen this with especially, you know, Netflix shows and some other streaming services have had this happen where like year after year after year, some fan base is riled up because it's like, how could you not pick that show up for another year? And they are merciless. They don't care. They don't the whether or not the show is good seems to me to be less and less and less of a factor in all of their decision making. And that is a real shame.
0: The Arrested Development, I watched it on DVD, so I did not help. I, I was late. Oh, cool. I, I watched it. I, You're the reason. Yeah, You're the, I'm reason the reason that why canceled. I didn't hang around. <laughs> but um, the quality thing comes to mind because in football, at least, they, they tried to add games when we were negotiating and we were like, no, we can't do that. And now they've added more games. And you look over at basketball where I think we all accept there's too many regular season games, which is why the regular season product like kind of sucks compared to where it is. It could be. And so that's the thing that I, that's the parallel that I guess I was looking to make that I guess I don't fully understand is that they have to know that this is going to weaken the quality. They have to know that their product, the only basis for competition is quality especially in this modern era where there's there are more than three channels like uh when we were kids there was just a few channels so you didn't have to like everything was probably a lot better because or i guess it was a little bit broader so it could reach more people but the quality was What the quality was at the time was the best for the era, but there was less competition. We didn't have phones. We didn't have video games short of Nintendo. The competition was weak. And so you were probably competing more on uh, getting the content to people. You know, so like that was the most deciding factor of the shows that we consider classics were that was the shit they showed us. So that was the (laughs) shit we had to watch and we would figure out what was the best that was available. And I was like, all right, that's a damn classic. And now it feels so different that the. The ecosystem has changed in a way where no, it's not about that with streaming services, with social media, with video games, with everything that we have as entertainment. It confuses me why entertainment properties from sports leagues to, uh, television and movie producers why they don't recognize that where they should be investing is where they can actually compete and all you can compete on is quality because it takes me no effort to switch from netflix to hulu to disney plus to cable to picking up my
1: phone to all of that stuff well think about how many things have changed and and in how short a time they have changed right so you go from there are four broadcast networks and basically, one place that makes premium TV, which is HBO, right? That's the that's the landscape for a long time. And then these other places start making Showtime and and FX and AMC. You know, three of the greatest dramas of all time were on AMC in the <laughs> early part of the century. Who saw that coming, right? But generally speaking, it was a pretty contained ecosystem. And then suddenly, between and among Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus. You know now Peacock now all these other streaming services Apple Amazon suddenly you you have two things happening one is the number of just sh- HBO used to program two shows a week basically right it was they programmed one night a week Sunday night and there was a it was one episode of like The Sopranos and then there was one episode of some other show that you watched and then they had like Dennis Miller live or whatever as like a late night thing that was it and people were happy to spend ten fifteen bucks a month. Because everything they made was bespoke and and high quality and great. And now they are now every place is a subscription service. And Netflix has 10 million shows and 10 million movies. And so HBO goes, Well, we can't continue the same kind of pro like we can't make one show or two shows every three months. We've got to make twenty. We have to make shows all the time. We have to make movies and documentaries and TV shows and this and that and whatever. And every place is doing that. So suddenly they're in an arms race for the value of your subscription because it's now a subscription model largely instead of it being a broadcast model. So there's just... I mean, like, all you need to know is that the guy who bought the HBO brand was like, hey, we got to get rid of the words, (laughs) the letters HBO. (laughs) Like we got to get rid of it because what HBO means is small number of bespoke, high quality shows... That that are uh, that you're asking people to spend $15 a month to watch and what he needs it to be in this crazy lunatic arms race that they're in now is a name that means thousands and thousands and thousands of potential pieces of entertainment. So HBO, the greatest brand in the history of television, becomes what? max just the word max the just human the psychology
0: maximum. is like yeah. it's interesting in this way because none of us watch all this stuff but i also recognize that i want to get the most bang for my buck so i want to have right. access to all of this stuff i don't watch 10 percent of all the stuff i have access to but the idea that it's I, I still like on an economic standpoint would be like oh why would i subscribe to hbo for two great shows when i could subscribe to netflix and i have enough entertainment to last me 400 years if i don't sleep and it's like it it doesn't make sense (laughs) yeah
1: you just touched on something really important that's a missing piece of this right so you get a cable in in 1995 you get a cable subscription and how do they advertise it 75 channels for, (laughs) for one low price and over the years more what happens and more 100 channels, channels right? 150 channels, 700 channels, 1,000 channels, right? And the reason that that was happening was because they were preying on the psychology that you just described of more equals better. And, and also, what, what was happening was all of these media companies, as they consolidated and as they merged and as they grew, they were like, wait a second, this is the easiest money in the world. We get ESPN. Gets uh, four bucks a month from every single person who has a direct TV subscription, a cable subscription, everywhere in the country, whether you watch it or not. They're getting four bucks a month. So, what's the answer to how to make more money? Make more ESPNs, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN this, ESPN that, ESPN you, ESPN eight, whatever. And every single person, they don't get four bucks a month, but they get a quarter, they get 50 cents, they get whatever. And suddenly, that company is making $9 a month from every single cable subscription in the world. And so these companies saw a goldmine, an untapped goldmine, in simply adding more cable channels and forcing the carriers to charge the customers $0.10 cents a month, $0.15 cents a month. Who cares? You barely have to program anything, and you're rolling in free money. And for a good 10, 15, 20 years... All of the companies that we're negotiating with now, we're making passive income Mm -hmm. on because people associate, (laughs) the more the better. And then young people get their cable subscriptions and they say, why in the world would I spend $200 a month for a bunch of stuff I don't care about or watch or need? And they start cutting the cord and then all those companies invested all of that money in starting new cable channels, suddenly that money's disappearing. And so they're cannibalizing themselves. They're shifting, they're trying to get passive income now from forcing you to subscribe to a streaming service where you largely don't watch most of the stuff on the streaming service (laughs) instead of largely not watching most of the stuff on the cable channels that they were forcing those carriers to hold. That's funny. So, like, I I often when I talk about
0: this stuff from a sports perspective, I call on the the fans to recognize what has actually happened. I've never really thought about it from an entertainment, uh, well, I guess sports is entertainment, but from a TV and movie entertainment perspective. But it's a similar thing happened where uh, that psychology is something that they respond to and the the... The companies are looking to maximize that profit. And sometimes if we behave differently, they will behave differently. I don't think we we get kind of put in this position where we are the completely noble ones that are like where I'm arguing for a better, purer football and basketball and you're arguing for more and more art. I don't think either of us have. Well, I can speak for myself and certainly my family appreciates that the NFL is out here making money because that's money that you want to make. But I think the question is about where you put that slider on the continuum of capitalism versus like quality. And there's only one group, it feels like, that's on the side of pushing for quality. And that group doesn't have the power like their weight classes for a reason in combat sports but there really is no weight class and i i felt this personally in negotiating with the leagues and the owners the billion dollar teams like damn we really the incentives are not in our favor like it's a really hard to win and then i look at you are negotiating against sports. Amazon, Apple, Netflix, <laughs> like yeah. the most powerful companies in the world. It makes like Jerry Jones look and Robert Kraft look like small potatoes. So like, how do you manage uh, negotiating in those circumstances?
1: It's not easy. This is the first year that those companies have been in the AMPTP in a meaningful way. And in, tw- in, in 2020, which was the last cycle it was during covid and it was a it was very much like we had we had plans to do what we're doing now in 2020 but then covid hit and there was no way you can you can't have a legitimate th- strike threat in covid and so they kind of like pushed it off um made it made it the best deal they could and waited until now and so this is really you know in 2017 apple wasn't making anything amazon prime was barely i don't even know if they were making stuff so this is the first time that those companies have been at the center of the AMPTP side of things. And it is causing problems without question. The degree that it's causing problems, we can't fully know because we're not in their room. But it is extremely clear to anyone with a brain that Amazon does not have the same business issues that Sony does, right? Like Amazon Amazon established entertainment as a loss leader, to get you to spend $129 a month so you can get toilet paper in 48 hours. That, that's the reason they make TV and movies. Sony and, and Warner Brothers and these other companies, they're just these legacy content companies that if that's their main business. Like it is not Apple's main business. It is not Amazon's main business. And so there, for the first time ever, I think what we're encountering is a group of folks in the AMPTP who do not fundamentally exist in the same business space. Again, we can't really know what that's doing to them, whether it's causing huge problems, whether they're looking past them, whether they've worked out some kind of power structure that works. We don't know. That's but all we, but it is it is so, truly funny to read to hear from these companies like, "Sorry, we just don't have the money to pay your 12,000 member guild," and then to see Apple say, "We made 248 <laughs> trillion dollars last month selling phones and computers." like they uh, they the good thing about it is you're talking about two in Amazon and Apple two of the very most successful companies in the world yeah. and so their fake cries of poverty which they make every time we bargain with them are completely and transparently absurd and i think to some degree that's helping our side right. in terms of the the way this looks to the world and the way it looks to our membership of like Amazon and Apple don't get to say we don't have any money. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting. Obviously, we can't um, know what's happening in those rooms, but knowing the companies that are like legacy uh, content providers and this is all they have, like the strike is going to actually hurt them in a way that it's not going to hurt the bigger companies. But you would also think that they would be fighting tooth and nail to, to uh, tilt the economics of the situation in their favor while Amazon and Apple are on the other side and Netflix to some degree i guess this is their main business but they also at least their stock price is is huge so that these companies would be on the other side of this not caring as much about the little teeny fights but also not feeling the pressure that the that you hope a strike would allow them
1: to feel yeah i mean think about the differences like look abc cbs NBC, Fox, these companies still have false seasons the way that they always did in our whole youth growing up, right? They still have shows that debut in September. <laughs> Abbott Elementary yep. and Ghosts and those shows are still like on network TV starting in September in an ideal world. That is not the case for every uh, streaming service. They put their stuff up whenever they want to for whatever reason. And th- recently I looked this up. Uh, so Apple announced. That they were giving ninety billion dollars to their <laughs> investors in the form of stock buybacks and dividends. Ninety billion, the entire company of Paramount was valued at eleven billion dollars recently. Goodness gracious! So, Apple could buy seven Paramounts yeah. with the money that they're just giving back to their investors. Like the, it is, it is, it is as if like in 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 the collective bargaining you went through. It would be as if like, you know, the ownership is like, yeah, it's Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft and whoever. But then also it's a guy twenty times as rich as yeah. Jeff Bezos and a guy twenty times as rich as Elon Musk. Like those two people aren't in the same space. Like I you know, I think you and I talked about this once, but there are very few mom and pop stores anymore in sports. It's Genie Bus in the yeah. NBA, and it's, you know, the Steelers owners are kind of like that. It's there's very few owners in sports who are for whom the team is their only business. Right. And what you now have in the in the AMPTP is a group of companies for whom it's not their only business but it's their main business making content right. and then a group of companies for whom it is a ridiculous Rounding error on their we're talking reports. Like,
0: if I remember correctly, I think um, Apple's market cap is like $3 trillion. So we're not talking billions yeah. of dollars. We're talking companies make trillions three of trillion. dollars. And I remember in our negotiations trying to find ways to, um, to siphon off uh, factions of the owners. But... They were like, there was somebody, some teams worth a couple billion, some teams worth several billion. They were all in the same neighborhood. Like, this yeah. is entirely different galaxies of companies. So yeah, another uh, the differences on that side is one thing, but there are differences on your side also. And this is something that I've always called the quarterback problem. And when I was negotiating uh, for the NFLPA, we always felt like the quarterbacks didn't always feel like a part of the union. They like separate themselves off. They were like the one percent, and I guess I wonder for you. And I, I'm not projecting anything that you had when I went to to basketball. It was the same thing, except in basketball, it was a whole lot more quarterbacks, and it was difficult <laughs> to, to try to negotiate, to try to coalesce and have solidarity around things that just didn't matter to the top of the top and were life or death things for the guys who are the middle class and the bottom of the league. And you guys have that problem, especially with no salary cap. There's not a salary cap. That problem is even more like exacerbated where there probably are people. Well, not probably, you see people who are making hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of several years as showrunners. And then there's obviously the people who hope to one day that are now uh, potentially working side jobs. So like, how do you think about creating solidarity around with with a group that 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 is that disparate?
1: I think it's less of a problem than you might guess. Um, I think the reason it's less of a problem is that for your in your analogy, there's 53 guys on the NFL roster. There's 32 teams. So that's what, what is that? That's uh, 1,500 like guys, right? No. Am I doing that right? Yeah, close enough. 1,600 yeah. normally. Yeah. Um 1,600 guys. So it, and there's, there's 12,000 members of the Writers Guild. And the number of quarterbacks is larger, but the middle class is also way larger. Oh. You're talking about a middle class of six, 7,000 people. And so the, it it is it is a problem. It has been a problem internally, frankly, more than it's been externally. Internally, there is there have been in the past, I think it's less so this year, but there have been in the past certain people who are at the top of the food chain who are like, grumble, 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 unions. I don't mm-hmm. need union. I wish the union didn't happen, didn't exist. Um, it's less of a problem this year. And I think the reason is because w- when the whole industry, the whole mechanism by which TV is made is just contracting... It hurts showrunners too. Like, showrunners can't get money to pay their staffs. They can't, they don't have any reliable people moving up the ladder that they can then turn to and let them, you know, showrunners have to leave the actual room that you write stuff in very frequently. And when you do, you have to have someone in that room you trust to say, hey, keep going, keep working on this stuff. There are fewer and fewer of those people because there have been fewer and fewer, you know, people learning the ropes. So, it's affected everyone, even the even the quarterbacks has, have been adversely affected by what's happened. All right.
0: I have a ton more questions for you, but I won't waste any more your time. I got a couple. More. It's not a waste. This is a treat. I, I will not yeah, come on, grace man. any more of your time with a great conversation. But um, <laughs> I guess one of the things about the quarterback problem that I always notice and I imagine could happen for you guys, too. Um, so this is kind of a two-part question because it's like, one, how did you avoid? becoming one of the quarterbacks which is this is the only (laughs) place where you can call being a quarterback a negative thing I guess Um, what is it about you that allowed you to avoid that and the other one is it wasn't even as much about the interests being different and I know I framed it as like creating solidarity around specific interests that wasn't the challenge as much as it was the quarterbacks didn't think they were us and the quarterbacks, and oftentimes, and I'm generalized, it wasn't all quarterbacks, but oftentimes the quarterbacks were so close to management and they were the face of the teams. In football, it's like that where nobody knows football players except for the one who's throwing the ball. And so like they felt mm-hmm. like they were a part of management almost. And then when I moved over the basketball, like they were. like lebron james (laughs) his his life experience is a lot closer to being an owner or even being a commissioner of the the of the league than it is to any other basketball player so i think it's less about specific interests but it's also just about how they view themselves and my guess is when showrunners become really successful they are brought into the fold and for quarterbacks it's normally something opens their eyes. For Drew Brees, he was a really active guy in the union. It was that the Chargers went and drafted Phillip Rivers after they drafted him. And they are like, all right. And then Drew mm-hmm. was like, oh, no, I'm one of y'all. And it happens I'm fungible. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're reminded that, like, it was uh, particularly difficult. Well, it's, it's probably changed some now, but, like, quarterbacks were uh, disproportionately, like, Handsome, tall, white guys who oftentimes <laughs> came from money, and everybody else on the team was country black dudes who did not come from money. And it was a lot easier for the quarterbacks to be like, "Oh no, I ain't with them until you get treated like us." And so, I guess that's what mm-hmm. I was wondering from your experiences: how did you not? How did you avoid falling into that very attractive trap? And do you have not just the interest concerns, but also just the like general ideology of the the people within your union being challenged.
1: Okay, so this is a huge a huge question, a huge issue that we have to deal with in the writers guild. You are when you become a showrunner, absolutely partially management. You start making decisions about hiring and firing people. You are on the phone with and going out to lunch with and dinner with executives and folks in the ownership ranks of the studio you work for. You're treated differently. You are you you make a lot more money like it it and I, I do a thing at this writers guild uh has a a showrunner training program every year and one of the things i say every year is your loyalties become divided when you're a showrunner right. you have to remember you have to remind yourself that your loyalties you have loyalties to the studio that's paying you to the network that's airing your show you also have loyalties to the show itself to the staff to the crew that works on the show to the writers guild like you have to juggle a lot of things in your mind when you when you're in that liminal space between employee and management no question there's a key difference though imagine for a second that every quarterback in the NFL in their first year in the league was a backup uh right. long snapper oh, okay. and then the next year they were a Backup punt returner. And the next year it was only special teams. And the next year they got to, they played free safety and then they played offensive line and then they played running back and then they played wide receiver. Like the way, the normal path to becoming a showrunner is you were, you started at the bottom and Mm -hmm. you worked a year at every one of those jobs. And so it gets harder and harder. To forget that you are part of a union or part of a team or part of the labor force, even when you're a showrunner, when you've done all those jobs in order to get where you are. Now, I will say, plenty of people forget. <laughs> plenty of people, yeah. Plenty yeah. people slide into the captain's chair and they're like, here we go, like finally out of the rabble, and I can make my money and I can treat everyone like crap. And it sucks. It's a very it's a pervasive problem and it and it's something we internally try to combat, but It is a key difference between uh, the quarterback problem in the nfl and the showrunner problem and the
0: the, um yeah and the superstars the quarterbacks of the nba is like you are picked out at 12 and from that point on you are treated like you're special and then lebron
1: lebron james's high school games were aired on espn (laughs) like it's been a long time since that guy thought of himself as a normal (laughs) basketball player you know
0: all right i'll let you go on this because while the union negotiations are something that uh always pits management and labor against each other. I think it's important to understand, as we talked about earlier, all the competition that's out there. It's important to understand that it's co-opetition, or at least it should be some, like, you guys are on the same side in the long run. And, like, yes, you have to understand that. And I guess... I don't know if there's a specific question in this, but like I, I started this by talking about how these decisions impact the business, which scares me. And as I mentioned before, like I I was in a room, I wrote a TV show, my first one, I was a, a writer. I'm going to get a credit for an episode. I was really proud of, it, really excited about the potential of maybe uh, another career offshoot for me. But I don't know if it's going to happen or if it's going to be an industry there going forward. And maybe I'm being uh a little bit doom and gloom but what scares me and like i mentioned back to the original conversation we had was tiktok like uh, like i'm not i'm not scared of ai i'm not scared of uh of hungry capitalists trying to do all these other things i'm scared of this of the medium of tv in movies, for that matter, have already faded of of, of that going the way of books, <laughs> going the way of radio, <laughs> going the and like at the beginning of all of these transitions, the new medium. Was like judged in the way that we judge social media or TikTok now. It's like uh, people are gonna start reading books because of radio or whatever TV. Like that's just for dumb people. And now like TV is where the smartest, most beautiful stuff is happening. And that was once was movies. And and I just imagine that they're either creating an environment where this can happen, or they're expediting uh, an extinction event that we don't need to rush. Like, we don't have to rush the end of this to every, where the the most beautiful things being made are like some artistic, artistic expression of a three-minute TikTok video.
1: Yeah, it's even funnier if you go back to like the 19th century, you can read op-eds in like the New York Times about Charles Dickens novels. And it's like, this is going to corrupt the youth of America. <laughs> like no one will read Latin anymore or whatever. Like it's every time a new a new thing yeah. arrives, it's like, oh, this is the death of the old thing. Right. But I, I look, I, we fear that too. Obviously, I don't think I have a 15 year old son and a 12 year old daughter. And if you think I'm not very focused on how much more my son likes TikTok videos than the stuff that he and that that his mom and dad both do professionally. (laughs) Like, we're terrified of it because it's it's like they invented uh, uh, sugar water to give to rats. And the rats are like, yeah, give me more of that sugar water. I don't want to watch this long thing. I want to watch this eight second thing. Yes, that is a problem. Here's what I would say. There is, I think, something deep inside of humanity, and I may be in ten years play this video and laugh at me, uh, because maybe I'm wrong. I think there is something very deep inside of the of humanity that longs for storytelling, actual storytelling in chunks—twenty minutes, thirty minutes, an hour, two hours. It has always been that way. We always do crave narratives, like multi-part narratives. And I, I believe that there is a future, a bright future for screened entertainment in a long form way. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean it's not going to decrease somewhat or go in a, a sine wave pattern based on new technologies? It probably will. Demand will go up and down. But I truly believe that watching filmed stories is something we're always going to want to do. The thing that we said in the first week of negotiations with the AMPTP was basically, there was a system by which we made this stuff. Movies and TV shows and late night shows and all of it. That system made us uh, have be able to have a living and it made you rich beyond your wildest dreams. These companies are, they make 30 billion a year in profit, not revenue, profit, 30 billion a year, reliably, year in, year out. And that system, they have decided to attack and try to dismantle in the name of maybe making 34 billion dollars next year and w- our argument is basically it has a little bit of this in it which is like hey this worked really really well for a really long time you you all of your executives got rich your shareholders got rich your stocks went up reliably seven to 28 percent a year whatever the hell it was supposed to be and now because you're like ooh in the margins we can eke out a couple billion dollars what they're doing is trying to dismantle the entire machine. It is a classic goose that lays the golden egg scenario. That is absolutely what is happening. And I, where my fear comes in with what you're talking about is that if they do dismantle it and the quality of the product deteriorates at the rapid rate that I think it would deteriorate, it will accelerate the degree to which people turn away from movies and TV shows and start watching dumb freaking TikTok videos because why not? And all we have as an industry, as writers, actors, directors, craftspeople, teamsters, laborers, all of the folks who make this stuff, the only thing we have is the quality of the product. That is what we have to offer the world. The quality of the product has made $30 billion a year for these companies every year for a long time now. And if the quality of the product is slashed and burned and chipped away at, and it goes down, I think... You will see people in droves being like, Well, I'm not, that's not any good. I don't want to watch that. Like, what is everyone in the world talking about today? Succession. Why? It's incredibly well made. It's well acted. It's well written. They spent money on the production. The direction is incredible. Care and love and thought and craft went into making it. And if you take away care and love and thought and craft from the making of anything, people will go find something else. And that is honestly my number one fear.
0: That was beautiful. That was a great soliloquy that I am fully in favor of. I wish I believed it as hard as you believe it, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm happy that someone believes it and someone's going to keep making those things as promised. I'll let you go. Thanks a lot for doing this. And I'll call you next week, not to be recorded, but just to yell about you and stuff. Thanks, Mike. Any, anytime, man. Thanks for having me. This is the Dominique Foxworth show.